Thank you, Corey and Clint. Good morning, Cross Point. If you are a guest with us this morning, we welcome you and glad you're with us this morning. There is a visitor card in the seat pocket in front of you or in the chair under you. And uh, if you'd like more information or would like to be contacted by one of our staff or one of our elders, please go ahead and, and fill that out. Also, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under the seat or uh, right, right in front of you if you're on the second row. So this morning, um, I want to pray for Congressman-elect John Ratcliffe. And then uh, we'll, we'll begin in our text. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be with your people this morning. I thank you for just the cooler weather. I thank you, Father, for our church family. Father, as prayed before, I ask that we are not distracted, that, Father, we are focused completely and totally on you. Father, I lift up John Ratcliffe and his family as he prepares to go to Washington as our new congressman in this district. I thank you, Father, for his family. I thank you, Father, for his sacrifice that he has already made. I pray, Father, for protection over his family as he travels and pray, Father, that you would give him wisdom and endurance. That, Father, you would provide encouragement to him. And pray, Father, that you would watch over him. Father, for the rest of this morning, I lift up this time. I pray, Father, that I would be out of the way. That, Father, that your word would come clear. Thank you for this time and thank you for this people. Thank you for your son in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text this morning is in Luke chapter 16, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We'll be focused primarily on verses 1 through 13. This is the parable of the dishonest manager, as the ESV calls it, but I've entitled the message, Relational Generosity. We'll be going to three other satellite passages. We'll go to Luke 6, 32 through 35 for a brief moment. And then we will also go to 1 Chronicles 29, 12 through 14. And then we will also look at Malachi 3, 8, the very famous passage from the prophet Malachi for just a moment. The last time I had an opportunity to preach... We were in Luke chapter 15, and we were studying the parable of the unjust, excuse me, we we're studying the parable of the prodigal son. And if you take the parables that are in our Bible, you'll see that they're parables of the kingdom, parables of salvation, parables of wisdom and folly, and parables of the Christian life, and parables of judgment. And the parable of the unjust steward is a parable of wisdom and folly. If you looked at the context of the book of Luke, from chapter 9 through Luke 19, basically is a travel narrative. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is moving cross-country, and he's talking to a group of people. He's talked with the Pharisees. 
He is now in this particular context in Luke chapter 16. He's, he has turned and he's talking to his disciples. So if you will, let's read the text together or read with me. Luke chapter 16, 1 through 13. And it says, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said, what is it or what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you no longer can be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am, not excuse me, I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So what when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses? So summoning his master's debtors one by one. I'm sorry, I lost my place. His master's debtors one by one, he said to them, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which, is, which another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. Primarily, this, this parable is about relationships and money and how we use them. This story talks about a rich man, and the rich man had a manager. Now, the manager was a kind of a combination of a COO, CFO, and he was probably a freed man in the Roman context. And basically what he was doing was he was in charge of the affairs of this large estate. The manager was in charge of investing the owner's money. And as a manager, he had the ability to make those investments, and what he did and how he did it was binding. In other words, it was a part of Roman law. Now, in verse 2, we see the rich man comes to the manager and says, here's your termination notice. You're being fired. He was being removed from his position. Charges had been brought to him, probably by someone informing him that the, that the manager was wasting his possessions. Now what's interesting right here about wasting possessions in this verse is it's the same 
word, wasting, that's found in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, where, remember, the prodigal son had squandered his wealth in wild living. Probably someone had cared enough about this master to go and tell him that, you know, this manager is wasting your possessions. Often in this culture, it was... it wasn't very common to find someone that actually liked the landowners because what you have to imagine here is you've got this large farm, you've got a number of small tenants, and so you've got the culture dynamics of folks kind of fussing and fighting, and it was always the rich landowner and the oppression and problems that, you know, that just the harsh conditions of farming prevailed in. And so folks, and so folks didn't always like the landowners. But the But the rich man comes to the manager and says, here's your termination notice. And what's interesting about this is the the manager remains silent. He doesn't say anything. The manager does not offer up an argument. He basically remains silent. And by remaining silent, he admits his guilt. And the parable centers on a man who has just received his notice, who's been a really bad manager of his boss's money. Now this guy is soon to be out of work and so not not only did this guy have a problem of losing his job, he really didn't have anywhere to go. And so he begins at the end of verse 2 to hatch a plan to build friendships so that when he becomes unemployed he has some place to go. So in verse 3 The manager knows, according to verse 3, because he has very bad relations in town, that he will never get another job like this. He will be reduced to begging or to manual labor. And what I want you to see in this story is imagine the humiliation of losing your job or losing the management of a large company. The stockholders have come to you or your boss has come to you and they have said, you're wasting the company's money. You're wasting the possessions. This was so serious in this context that this manager was losing his social status. He was losing a place to sleep. He was losing a place to be. His situation had become so desperate overnight, physically, emotionally, and financially. I mean, he was literally about to move in with a social outcast, with the degraded and with the unclean. He was about to be homeless. Yet there's a small window, yet there's a small window of opportunity here to organize his plan. So in verses 4 through 7, we see he recognizes he's losing his house and he decides, he, he decides what to do. He comes up with a plan and he calls his master's debtors in. And he begins to reduce their bills. In other words, he's knocking off enormous amounts of debt. And the phrase in verse 5 says, each one. And what each one means here is there was probably a lot of different debts and there were probably a large number of people involved here. And just imagine in, in this context that, that this family, that, excuse me, that this farming operation, this large estate, 
was probably about 20 to 25 times the size of the, of the normal family farm. So when you think about what the customers owed this rich man, when you think about, for example, 450 gallons of oil, or you think about three tons of wheat, and you just take and write that off, that's basically equivalent to what two years' salary would have been. In other words, what that looks like in our context is, is, is if your mortgage officer calls you and says, hey, says, you just pay $30,000 on that $50,000 note because I need to come over and stay with you tonight. I need to come over and eat with you tonight. Can we just be friends? <laughs> so, <laughs> so in other words, so he hatches this plan. So he's working out a system. He's working out a plan so that he can come over and basically spend the night. Now, of course, in this particular situation, this creates instant friendships. All of a sudden, he has new relationships. He has new friends and folks that he can talk to that he hasn't had before. And, of course, the debtors in this situation, they're very happy. And what this guy's counting on is called relational reciprocity. I will do for you if you will do for me. I will scratch your back if you will scratch my back. I will forgive a portion of your debt so that I am welcome in your home. He gained friends and they were expected to repay with hospitality. Yet here is one of the knots in this parable that I want to turn a corner with very quick, very carefully. This manager expected relational, re, relational reciprocity. But Jesus gives us no basis by which his followers might expect reciprocation from our friends. Turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 32 through 35 very quickly. This manager expected relational reciprocity, but in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 32, and I'll read through 36, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Now remember, he's talking about what we should be doing as sons of light. Verse 34, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus expects us to give to those who are incapable of reciprocation. Jesus expects us to move in radical generosity, like our Lord. I mean, doesn't that sound like the gospel, where we're in a set of circumstances, where in our particular condition... We don't have the ability to reciprocate. There's nothing that we can do to earn the grace of the cross. There's nothing that we can do to make up for our sin. There's nothing we can do. And Jesus expects us to move in radical generosity 
in ways towards others that are incapable of reciprocating. Back to Luke chapter 16, verses 8 through 9. Now, verse 8 and 9 is where we can get confused a little bit. And, and the master sees this steward, this, this manager knocking off all the debts, and he commends him. And basically, even though he says you're, he said, even though you're dishonest, you're really very smart. And it's important to note that the master does not commend the manager for ripping him off. Rather, the master commends him for being shrewd. And to really grasp the point and, to not, uh, and not to misunderstand the word shrewd, shrewd is defined as having sharp powers of judgment or sharp in practical matters. In other words, you're really very clever. You're really very wise. Yet Jesus labels this man as dishonest. The master appreciates the fact that this manager is thinking ahead about providing for his future. And theoretically, what was going on here was probably the manager was cutting his own fees. In other words, he was charging a management fee on top of the loans that he was making to these other folks. And so he's probably forgiving some of his own fees as part of this debt reduction. So by the manager taking his own fees, not only did he make the debtors very happy in which he could use those relationships in the future, his master came along and said, actually, you're giving me a better name in town. Now, Jesus' whole point in verse 8 and 9 is here is a man being wise with the use of his wealth inside of a secular context. In other words, this manager is moving strictly in a secular framework. And Jesus is saying... Jesus is equipping his disciples, and Jesus is saying, I want you, my disciples, to be wise with your wealth as sons of light, like this worldly man, this son of the world. In other words, I want you to be shrewd with your money, shrewd with your resources, like this son of light, excuse me, like this son of the world, so should you be wise with your wealth. So this parable is about how Jesus calls his disciples to use their worldly wealth in the context of relationships. Look at, verse, look at verses 10 through 12. Here Jesus begins to give us an incentive clause for engaging in sacrificial lifestyle or in a sacrificial lifestyle. He's comparing our worldly resources with those we will receive if we follow his plan. And Jesus is making the point that character is character. Whether your responsibility is big or small, we tend to always handle things in the same way. Whether you're handling something big or whether you're handling something small, we always tend to handle them the same way. And the steward here in this particular situation had a character problem. He wasn't able to manage what was right in front of him. And it's important to understand that in this life, there are far greater things than money. If we can't handle our resources well 
in this life, how can we expect God to entrust us with true riches in the next life? Jesus also expands this beyond money, and what he says is this, is that how do you expect for God to entrust you with something if you cannot in, be entrusted with things that belong to someone else? Jesus is making the point that if we cannot care for things of others, why should we be entrusted with things of our own? For example, how do you expect your bank to manage your funds? Don't most of us, when we have money in the bank, we expect our funds to be managed with care and courtesy. The truth here is this manager had not moved with any care, certainly no courtesy. The truth is character determines faithfulness, not circumstances. If we prove to be faithful with our worldly resources he has given us, then in return we are promised much, where in this life we truly have very little. And the way we use our resources and relationships in this life makes a difference in the lives of others now and in the life to come. And Jesus expects us all to be faithful in all things. Look with me in verse 13. Just being really transparent, I struggled with that, and verse 13 can be a little tricky. Where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. The point of this verse is to say money cannot be your ultimate priority. Again, Jesus is drawing imagery from this parable and focusing on the relationship of, between the master and the manager. Masters are mutually exclusive. It's a one-way street. It's one priority. The manager's role was to serve the master. That is what he was employed to do. He was employed to take care of the resources left in his care. However, this whole scenario kicks off because the manager had been ensnared by the resources themselves. In other words, his lack of understanding regarding his relationship with, with his master is what got him in trouble in the first place. And the result is he lost his position and he lost his future provision. I want you to see just three things in this parable. You will write those down first thing that I want you to see about this parable is we are entrusted with money that is not ours. Number two, relationships are better than money in the bank. And number three, we cannot serve two masters. The first point is very hard-hitting, and the point is we are stewards of money that is not ours. Jesus made up a parable here to say, do you see this guy in this secular context? Do you see how this guy is operating? So should you as well. You should be very shrewd with your resources. You should be very shrewd with your money. Jesus is equating us as a manager. He's equating us as a manager of someone else's money. 
The word used in this parable is oikonomos, which literally means ruler of the house. It also means manager, but can be translated steward because this man was a manager of someone else's money. Excuse me, of someone else's money. In other words, he's a fund manager. He has a financial responsibility, meaning he has a legal duty, a legal duty to act solely in the benefit of the principal's interest. In other words, in his master's interest. In other words, when you are a steward of someone else's money or when you are managing someone else's money, you just can't do anything with that money because it's not your money. Jesus clearly communicates that if you understand there is a God, you'll know that the money is not yours. So stop acting like it is yours. Now, you know, we, we as Americans, we as Christians, we business people, we, we look at things and we go, look, look what I did. Look, I worked very hard. I, I mean, I, I, I just got this paycheck. I mean, I went to the fire station. I mean, I, it's, it's my money. I mean, I made that money. I built that house. I, I did this. I did that. Yet the Bible says, and Jesus says, no, it's not. And what I want you to do is think about it for a minute. You say, I worked very hard. But you worked very hard with what? Whose air did you breathe? How did you get up this morning? Whose money is it really? Whose ground are you standing on? In other words, what was that verse in Genesis 1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Without God creating the heavens and the earth, uh, earth the earth, it would be impossible to make money. The fact of the matter is, God establishes in Deuteronomy 8.18, he says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to create wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to you, your fathers, as it is this day. And here's what I want you to see in this is that the truth is every day we have the opportunity to get up and enjoy the creation. We have the opportunity to tend to our families. We have the opportunity to use our talents that God has given us. Think about how we should be using those resources in that time and community. Think about the, the circumstances you exist in. All these things work as his design for you to create wealth, to provide for your families, and gather provision for the work of the kingdom. You see, it's not your money. It's his. Turn to 1 Chronicles 29, 12 through 14. King David was a, was a very wealthy man. 1 Chronicles 29, 12 through 14. And even King David says, and he prays, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? What is it that my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own have we given to you. 
So what does this mean? It means that if you are a steward, you are a steward of money that's not yours. It means that God is calling you to be radically generous, which the Bible says for, for us to do. And if you're not being radically generous, it's not just an oversight. It's not just an area you need to grow in. It's robbery. It's pillaging. It's plundering. It's plundering a holy God. In other words, if you're not being radically generous, it's not just being stingy or being tight-fisted. It's thievery. It's a lack of integrity. As stewards, we are fund managers. With a financial duty, you are not using, if you are not using the money the way the owner intended, or you are taking more money for yourself, than has been agreed to. It's just not a misappropriation or an oversight. You're being a thief. You're picking God's pocket. You're being fundamentally disingenuous. And it's sin. To demonstrate what I'm talking about in God's design here, in Malachi 3.8, you can turn there if you wish. Malachi 3.8 is a a famous passage. It's used in a lot of giving contexts, but in the context I want to use it this morning is it's really God's design. It's a proportional design of how God has set up his kingdom. The verse says, will a man rob God? This this is Malachi the prophet talking to to, uh, to the children of Israel. Will a man rob God? You are robbing me, but say, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, remember in the Old Testament, the paradigm was, and the teaching is that, you know, 10% of your money should be given away. Now, I don't know about you, but at different times in my life, that seemed like a lot of money. And you know, you start sweating, and, and if you're like me at different times, you've good heavens, uh, we've got this much in, we've got to give that, and, and um, uh, you know, you're just, you just get all sideways about it. And what the Old Testament is teaching is that basically 10% of our income should be being dispersed or given away. And what that should look like is if someone came to you and said, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll put you in business. I'll help you start this business and you can keep 90% of the income and all I want is 10%. What, what would you say? In other words, I'm going to build you a house and I need one room. I need to be able to come by and stay for a night or two during the week but the, but the house is yours to use Everything will be taken care of, but can I please come by and stay for a night? 
How many of you, if you had the opportunity to go in business or you had the opportunity to do something with an investment and you got to keep 90%, how many of you would do that? Of course you would. You would say, yes, yes, that's a great idea. And that's what God is saying. God is saying, you can live on 90% and give me 10%, realizing in the first place, it's all of his money anyway. Yet we've all probably, we have all probably struggled here at some point, and I know I have. And Malachi is right in saying that if you don't give God that amount of money in tithes and contributions, you're just not being miserly, you're being a thief. Now, if you're holding your hand over your lip or your mouth and you're going, now, wasn't that the Old Testament? Wasn't that 10% thing? Where is this 10% idea in the, in, the, in the New Testament? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the standards of the Old Testament for God's people are higher or lower than standards for believers in the New Testament? In other words, do you believe that the New Testament believers get more grace or less grace, more benefit or less benefit than the people in the Old Testament? Well, we just covered Hebrews 9. Well, of course, the answer is the people in the New Testament get more grace, more benefit, more revelation. The standards are always higher for us in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. The fact is, if you are not giving somewhere in the area of 10% of your income, and that, and that may be something you can't do right now. That may be something you're struggling with. What I'm wanting you to see this morning is that's God's design. That's a proportional design that God has given us. Some people think or say if, if they had more money, they would give more. But in reality, again, it's character, not circumstances, that determines our faithfulness. You are a fund manager, a steward of the master's money. The owner says, I want you to be giving or distributing at least 10% of your money. We aren't supposed to be stingy. We're to be radically generous. We are stewards of money that's not ours. The second thing I want you to see is relationships are better than money in the bank. Look at verse 8. Luke chapter 16, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now look closely at what this manager did. He actually gave up or abstain from short-term financial gain to gain a relationship. He gave up short-term financial gain to invest his money in something that lasted in the long term, not the short term. 
Now, we all know that in a secular context, the best thing to do with your money is to put something, excuse me, is, is to put your money into something that is long-term, to something that will increase the value. In other words, it would be better to limit your consumption, have a budget, and put the resources you are stewarding into something that possibly might sustain you later, a sort of storing up, so to speak. But here's what Jesus but here, though, Jesus is asking and pointing out what really lasts, what will really sustain you, what can you really count on? And when Jesus is saying here is when your worldly wealth is gone, what do you really have? There's no financial asset. There's no vehicle, no financial vehicle, no collector's item, no business. Nothing really lasts, nothing. So it doesn't matter where you put it, eventually you're going to die. And if you have a lot of money and you put it in a vault under a mountain in Switzerland, the mountain is going to blow away and become a pebble and you're still going to die. And so Jesus is saying here, what are you going to depend on? There's absolutely nothing in a secular context that is going to last. So Jesus is saying here, send your money forward. Send your money into something that really lasts. Put your money into people and opportunities. Spend your money in ways that bring glory to heaven and build relationships. Put your money into eternal things. Now, if you're like me, someone says, put your money into relationships or put your money into, into, into eternal things, you know, what does that look like? You know, tomorrow is Monday. Kids have got to go to school. We've got doctor's appointments, dance recitals, stores to open, businesses to attend. And so what does that really mean? What does Jesus say about that? What, what does he say eternal things are? Look in verse 9. Jesus cracks the door to heaven Friends. He describes heaven or eternal dwelling as friends. Remember Ben's sermon, and I don't remember the date, but remember when he used the word, the let us's, let us draw near, let us move together in community, let us come together. It's a part of being community. It's part of being in a relationship. It's part of moving in relational generosity. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves. Use your money, your unrighteous wealth, your mammon, to make friends. Here's the henna clause. So that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This is the friends forever clause. Jesus is saying, quote, when your money fails, he's literally saying when you fail. When you fall apart... When your body gives out, when you become frail, when your time runs out, when you have to give an account like this manager did, who is going to sustain you? Ultimately, you're going to fail, and ultimately, you're going to come apart one way or another. Michael Wilcock wrote a commentary on the book of Luke. 
And he really nails the point of this parable really very well. And he says, although these things, your property, your ability, your time belong to this life only, Jesus says, what will happen to you then when you pass into that life will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of your money brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. A fellowship of friends. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this narrative. This steward has recognized that he needs friends. Friends are more important than money in the bank. You know, oftentimes, oftentimes as a businessman, I've looked as much, I have looked at money as a way to give me significance. After all, it was security. It's what my banker said. It's what I learned in business school. What's the left side of the balance sheet look like? What does the right side look like? And the point I missed early in my business career is that you can have a lot of money, but if no one loves you, then what significance is that? If you have a lot of money, it doesn't lend to security. And if you have a lot of money and everybody hates you or no one really knows who you are, you're just a shallow Hollow soul, no core, no values. It's all about you and the money. And it's love that gives you significance, and there's no security in money. And Jesus says it's friends. We serve a relational God, and it's about friends. You can only feel wealthy when you love people and they love you back. You don't have to turn here, but I'm wanting you to understand the design. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, you were made for relationships. And it says, God says that, that it's not good for man to be alone. Our God is a relational and a social God. Look at the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You were meant for community. You were meant for relationships. You were meant to walk together. This isn't going to be a neat deal. Somebody needs to get to know you. And you need to share your stuff with them. And you need to not expect for them to share back. That's the biblical design. You were meant to engage and serve others by allowing the let us's in. And being a part of drawing near. As Christ has made us in his image. Third, and it's a brief point, verse 13. We cannot serve two masters. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other. The word dualo refers to, to 
serving as a slave. In this day, in this time, in this context, there weren't part-time jobs. You didn't have one job and then you went to your second job. That, that you had one place you had to be. You didn't go work eight hours one place and then you went to work four hours at another place. You, you did not have two masters. One had to be devoted to one source of provision. Multiple options were not even considered. Slaves were property of their masters, just like we are property of our, our master. We are property as children of God, as sons of light. We are property of Jesus Christ. We have been bought and paid for with a price. We cannot have a co-ruler of our life. Matthew 6.24 says, no one can serve two masters. John Calvin comments, he says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. When we're conflicted in our emotions and we're conflicted in our attitudes, our, our service in the kingdom is tainted, half-hearted, and ultimately self-centered. Where you invest your money reveals where your heart is. It's an index to your thinking as it relates to your walk. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 uh, through verse 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't you see, when, when we have two masters, we're loyal to none. We eventually get into trouble just like the manager did. He was encumbered by his resources. He had forgotten the relationship that he had with his master. At a personal level for me, I don't believe the gospel fits into a spreadsheet anymore. Some things relationally don't always add up. It doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do. We have to get past that in the sense that we have to consider what are we devoted to. We have to consider what and who we're serving. There's a battle that rages in the heart of every person who tries to be a disciple of Christ. A battle for supremacy between God and a supremacy between the world. And we are in constant danger of worshiping things instead of God. And the sad thing is that sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. In Luke chapter 16, this passage, Jesus calls us to open our eyes and look at our lives and to consider how we use the worldly resources God has entrusted us with. By using them in his service, not only, to do, not only for the benefit to provide for ourselves, but to provide for others. Not only does God look great, and draw people to him when we are relationally generous. But we keep him, Christ, in the rightful place at the center of our lives as
as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ben will come up and do our supper. When Jeff uh, told me, he gave me a heads up, he was preaching that parable. I couldn't wait to see how this went. It's a challenging parable. I mean, it really is a complicated parable. Usually, a parable has one moral. It's sort of a sniper round. This one has two. They work in different directions. Uh, at one point in this parable, this guy's commended. In another point, saying, don't, don't act like this guy. In, in one way, Jesus is teaching his disciples, don't be like this guy who served two masters, his own and money, and you could add in there his, himself, because it's going to get you in a bind. Secondly, the moral of uh, when you get in a mess and you have some resources, direct those into people, that people matter more than money in the bank. Really, it's a, it's a challenging parable. I've never heard it preached, and I was thankful to hear that this morning. I think his three points, uh, we're going to have the supper here in just a moment, but I want you to hear these three points, and I'm going to share something with you. I'm going to put something in front of you, an opportunity to walk in what you've heard this morning. The only thing better than hearing truth exposed is to hear with it an opportunity then to respond. Okay, so here's his three points. Money's not yours. Two, friends are better than money in the bank. And three, you can't serve two masters. Um, there are a couple families in our church that uh, have been, um, the Lord has given them unique challenges with one of their children in each family. Micah Bray and Oliver Hicks are two little dudes that if you've tended to children over in uh, the, uh, the children's building, uh, you may know these little, little boys. Both of these boys are autistic, and um, the Brays and the Hickses are, um, they're tending to therapy for both of these little boys to the tune of $1,000 to $2,000 per month. Let that hit you just for a minute. Not covered by insurance. Both of them have great insurance. Both families, both work out at L3. This therapy is so important that both of these families are just doing all they can to piece things together to figure out how they can make this work because it has a lot to do with how these little boys are going to function as young men and then adults. A couple weeks ago, this hit me, and I talked to Aaron and talked to John and asked them for permission to share this with their church family and thought about, man, we are really, really good as a church about helping those financially who've been stupid with their money. I'm just being really honest with you. And it's not a pointing a finger because we've all been stupid with our money. That's a part of the ministry of the church. It's called benevolence where you have somebody might walk in the front door. It might be somebody in our, within our own church that has made some bad decisions and they find themselves in a real fix. And the people of God come alongside because that's a picture of the gospel. We're in a terrible fix, but yet God has made us his friends. So it's a great opportunity to walk in the gospel. One of the areas that, that we can ever grow in is to help those who are moving well. The Lord gave them each two little boys that have tremendous needs, and those are my boys too. 
and they're your boys too. Man, when that hit me this a couple of weeks ago, I shared that with the elders and the trustees and all of us together. We're like, man, we've got to put this in front of our body. And we potentially, as a body, can come alongside these two families, potentially in our budget. But we've got to put this in front of our body to give our church family opportunity to come, come alongside these families and to tend to these little boys as if they're our very own. When a child is dedicated to this church family, which has happened a number of times, Maybe your own children have been dedicated here. At that point, they became our children. So little Micah and Oliver are ours. And the money is not yours. And what a great way to make friends and invest in an eternal way with a couple of families and a couple of little boys. And the fruit will be hanging from the tree in eternity for how we respond to this. I want to give you a heads up about that and let you know that there will be an email that will follow up here in the next day or so, next couple of days, that will explain how we can go about walking in this. We want to give them um, the opportunity to, um, for, for families to participate and want to try and figure out how we're going to do that, whether it would be directly to a family, one of these families, or through a, 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 a separate offering or a separate fund at Crosspoint. We haven't really figured all that out, but we have figured out that we need to put the, the need in front of our family, in front of our church family. Um, I'd ask you, too, to be praying for these families. Prayer is great, uh, but prayer with responding is even better, because if we only pray, then it's like saying, be warm and well-fed, Hicks and Brays, figuring out how you're going to come up with 1000 to $2,000 a month. But we want to do more than that, and we want to come alongside them. As far as the supper goes, um, the supper has wonderful connection to this sermon this morning. I don't know if you saw the gospel unfolding in this parable, but the gospel's in there. Because ultimately, we're the manager that served multiple masters. It's the human problem where ultimately we've served the masters of sin and self and Satan. Ephesians 2 says that we are children of wrath by nature, walking with, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the human problem. So we can look at this manager and say, man, this guy served two masters. What a mess he got himself into. And I hope you see yourself in that situation as well, that we've served multiple masters, but yet instead of us trying to figure out how we can plow on through that and fix the problem like this manager, we had a replacement manager, a truly righteous replacement that stepped in our place and didn't forgive partial debts like this guy, but forgave the debts, not in part, but the whole. Amen? Man, that's good medicine. You see that in that parable, and man, what a great opportunity to connect the supper that this morning, and we do this every week because we can't be reminded of it too often. He became our replacement. He paid a price we couldn't pay. He was righteous in our place in a way that we couldn't have been, and he forgave our debt completely through a perfectly sinless life and a gruesome, bloody cross and then an especially vacant tomb. We're going to distribute the elements and enjoy that reality together. Let's go ahead and distribute those. Jeff had a uh, quote in his sermon that I wrote down. I hope I can get through it in light of what we're about to do. He said, I will forgive a portion of your debt 
so that I will be welcome in your home. You remember that moment? Put Jesus in there right now. I will forgive all of your debt. All of it. So that I'll be welcome in your Monday, in your marriage, in your bank accounts, in your neighborhoods, in your relationships, in your life. Man, that's beautiful. Let's together in faith take and eat. Let's enjoy that debt paid and that friendship we have with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and take and drink. Let's continue in song. I'm thankful for the uh, exposition this morning. I'm thankful for the opportunities, too, that we have to walk in what we've heard. I want to encourage you, too, if maybe you're in a spot this morning where you're feeling like, man, I'm kind of on the need, you know, I'm on the receiving, I need to be on the receiving end of some, I've been stupid and I've, and I'm in a bind. Uh, There are resources for that as well. But I will tell you this. If you continue on treating your money like it's your own, then get comfortable with where you are now because you're going to stay there. I'll make you the promise. It's not a health and wealth thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about I'll make you the promise. If you continue to treat your money as if it's your own, you will ever be in the state that you're in right now. You think you're going to get out of it, but you won't. He's not going to let you get away with it. If there's no otherness to how you treat your money, you think he's going to bless you? He's not. He's not a chump. So I want to encourage you in that. If you're thinking, man, how can, I, how can I make a difference? I can tell you that 100 families can make a massive difference. In tiny doses, if 100 people, 100 families are being faithful in something like this, even in small ways, you're like, man, I think I can muster 20 bucks a month you know, to help one family or another or one situation or another. You think God can use something like that with 100 families a month? Gracious. You sit around and think, man, I can't make a difference. What's $20 going to do? Of course you're not. You're not by yourself, though. You've got a, a great cloud and host of witnesses surrounding you. Let me encourage you in that. I'm going to pray for our obedience in what we've heard this morning. And um, I'm going to send us off with a little um, um, benediction. I had a blank on the word. Benediction that I found in uh, 1 Corinthians at the end of our prayer. So let's go ahead and stand. God, what sweet opportunities you've put in front of us this morning. What sweet truth. God, I'm thankful that we are a people of the word, a people that hear your word and just have the only option of just responding and walking in it. I'm thankful that it's that simple and that clear. God, I pray that you would guard our hearts and minds from confounding it and negotiating and starting to figure out ways that we wouldn't have to respond and we don't have to respond. And that we would be faithful just to hear and do. God, you've entrusted us with so much. I pray that we'll be faithful, putting you on display. We're thankful for our time together this morning. I want to pray for this people. From 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.